Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us in the full human form of Jesus who is fully God and fully man, revealing to us the beauty of what God is like. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see you more clearly and to love you more deeply. May we appreciate your word. May your spirit touch our hearts in just the way that each of us is needing. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was in the mid-1970s when a group of people got together and they were frustrated because, in general, the, the theory about how the Pacific Islands were populated was that it was just happenstance, that the, the villagers had gone here and there, and, oh, we ended up at an island. And, and there were people who said, no, I think that these were expert navigators who were able to go in their canoes for thousands of miles. And people scoffed at this to say, yeah, right, you think you can go in these canoe boats that they have thousands of miles? That's just not possible. And so a group of people began to design the Hakalua. I think that's right. I don't know if you know how to speak in Hawaiian and let me know if that's not right. But it means star of gladness. It was a double-hulled canoe with sails that had no navigational equipment whatsoever. It was something that the islanders could have fully used in order to get from island to island. But there was one problem. They designed the boat. It looked great and all that, but there was one problem. Can you guess what it was? They didn't have an islander who knew how to navigate anymore. They went all the way to New Zealand from Hawaii, searching the entire Pacific, trying to say, is there somebody who still knows how to navigate ships? And so, uh, in spite of all that, they kept searching, and they went and finally found this tiny little island called, uh, I'm going to lose it here, Swala, I don't know what it's called, but it's this tiny little sliver in an island. You can look up this guy in just a second. And they found this island with 300 people on it. And there was one guy on this island who was one of those who knew how to do sailing, who was a wayfarer, who knew how to navigate. And so they went and they asked, Pius Mao Pialog, what do you kids think? You think that guy, you trust him to sail 3,200 miles from Hawaii to Tahiti, you know, if you get off by a degree here or there, you're, you're going to end up who knows where, probably the South Pole, right? You're going to trust that guy to guide your canoe from Hawaii to Tahiti. Well, they got on the, the canoe and they convinced him finally to do it and he began to navigate them. At night, he would navigate them by the stars. In the daytime, he could tell by the sun. He even would watch the birds. He'd watch the wildlife. He'd watch the direction that the sea was going. They said the entire trip, he sat at the front of this boat just looking straight forward. Later, another person that he began to teach how to do this, he said, the whole time, you've got to have pictured in your mind the island that you're headed to. And so they went on a 3,200-mile journey. And when they arrived... Half of uh, the island of Tahiti came out. There were 17,000 people that came to greet 
this boat as it finally arrived. And sure enough, he was able to navigate 3,200 miles without any modern navigational equipment whatsoever. No compass, no GPS, none of the stuff that we rely on. I can't even, are you kidding me? I can't even get very far in Paso Robles without my phone. I don't know about you. It's, it's crippled me. I can't get around without my phone telling me where to go. But this guy was able to navigate 3,200 miles across an open ocean. You know, the Bible tells us something fascinating in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. It says, we have the prophetic word. It says, these words are not just words, and, and they're prophetic. And what's the purpose of that? More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention to what's in here, Peter says. One who should have listened when Jesus said, tonight you're going to deny me three times. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, it it gives light to our path until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, until you fall more deeply and deeply in love with Jesus, more and more light in your life. And in a world of darkness, we really, truly need this. But Today we're, like I said, looking at the book of Daniel, and we're looking at Daniel chapter 11, and many scholars will tell you this is the most complicated chapter in the entire Bible. So sometimes our eyes begin to glaze over when we read something like this. It can be helpful to get a picture of what's going on here in the book of Daniel. You're welcome to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, and we are going to see that the whole purpose of this prophecy is that... Jesus can be revealed to us, that he can be lifted up in our hearts. Now, Daniel, we're going to actually, verses 2 to 4, they start off by describing, starting with, you'll notice, Persia, and it says that there's three kings, and then there's going to come a fourth king, and then it talks about them amassing wealth, and then it says that after that, a mighty king is going to come. Okay, so to set the context for those who haven't been in our, our study on Daniel, Daniel's living in Babylon. Babylon has been overcome by the Medes and the Persians. You can look on Wikipedia and find this outline or look, Google it and find the history of nations. And there's going to be three more kings and then a fourth king. And then something different is going to happen. And we know what this something different, this mighty king is. When we get to verse 4, it says, And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. So his kingdom isn't going to continue, but it's going to be divided in four directions, but not among his posterity. What does posterity mean? His, His kids are not going to be inheritors of this kingdom. And not according to, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. Now this verse closely parallels Daniel chapter 7, which talked about the goat and that there was one notable horn that comes from the goat that represented, we're told, Greece and the first king of Greece, which was Alexander the Great, the one who conquered all the way to India, this ancient Near East, and a massive kingdom that Alexander the Great was able to rule over. So here's an important principle just at looking at the book of Daniel, and that is this. We started off in Daniel chapter 2. There's this picture of a statue, and it's pretty simple. It starts with gold, then it's silver, then it's bronze, then it's the iron legs, and then it's the feet of iron and clay. And it represents the kingdoms that are coming after that. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and divided Europe. When we get to Daniel chapter 7, we find four beasts that represent these same four kingdoms. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, we find that it skipped over Babylon, but then it again goes to unpack the same swath of history, except for it begins to dwell more and more on this picture of what Rome looks like in its two phases, and it begins to unpack that. 
So when we get to Daniel chapter 11, a quick, easy way to look at the first uh, section of Daniel chapter 11 is to realize that verses 1 to 2, it tells us that's about Persia. Then verse 3 starts with Greece, and that goes through verse 14. You can go home and look at it later or ask me. I'd love to give you something that unpacks this a little bit more. And then starting in verse 14, we come to Rome. Now, who was born under the Roman Empire? Somebody told me that every time you're in church, the right answer is always Jesus. That's not true, but right now it is the right answer, right? So, and then the Holy Roman Empire is 29 to verse 45 uh, is, is, is a big part of what, what we picture there. So, Daniel is operating on this repeat and enlarge formula. We have Daniel chapter 2, then we have Daniel chapter 7, then we have Daniel chapter 8 and 9, and then Daniel chapter 11 unpacks the same swath of history, but with greater specificity. So this helps us to understand it with a lot more clarity when we grasp that. So this is, is this making sense at all? This is an outline of Daniel chapter 11. Now check this out. How many verses, somebody have a Bible there, how many verses are there in Daniel chapter 11? Any kids got your Bible open? Daniel chapter 11, how many verses are there in Daniel chapter 11? Anybody have your Bible open? How many verses do you see in Daniel chapter 11? 45 verses of a lot of this detail, a lot of historical detail predicted hundreds of years in advance. What is half of 45? 22 and a half. Good. All right. Kids, you got to keep tracking here with the math. I, I think you're doing good with math in school, but anyway. All right. So 22 and a half. So there's a fascinating thing. When you look at the book of Daniel, you look at chapter 11, who do you think is at the center of it all? Daniel chapter 11. Let's go and let's set the context. And we're going to find out what happens in verse 22, the latter half of verse 22 in Daniel chapter 11. Um, these are the scary beasts from Daniel chapter 7. Again, showing this increasing picture of... Um, I, I skipped ahead of myself, which is a good thing. Um, increasing picture of violence and force that is used by these kingdoms. And before coming uh, this, this week, I did a, a little read-through of Daniel 11. And kids, I want to see how many of these words you could spell, since we have our school kids here with us. All right, so these are some of the words that, that jump out to you as you read the Daniel chapter 11. There's succession, there's amassing wealth, there's self-reliance, there's war, domination, self-will, brokenness, division, there's power over people, there's force, there's authority, there's betrothal, there's, there's, you, you see this, this alliance between uh, Egypt and, and Rome through, through marriage. You see betrayal even in the same story. You see idolatry, captivity, greed, strife, rage, fighting, victory, defeat, armies. How many of you kids can spell all those words so far? All right, good. We got some in the front row. That's a good thing. Violence, sieges, fortresses, strongholds, force, resistance, destruction, reproach, treason, taxes, intrigue. How many of you are feeling excited? Like, yeah, I love, the, I love Daniel chapter 11. <laughs> Look at all this stuff. But in reality, these same words, don't they describe when you check out the news, what's going on in the world today? It's a dismal picture of what's going on in society. And a lot of these things are fear-inducing. They, they create anger. They create fear. They create depression. They create sadness. That's why we're going through them so fast. 
It keeps going. There's deceit, there's plunder, there's defilement, abomination, desolation, self-exaltation, annihilation, blasphemy, there's attacks, there's battles, there's evil, there's lying, there's grief. It's horrendous. And if you've ever felt like, what in the world's going on? Why is the world just spiraling out of control? If you wonder, why are things so crazy? Why does the news look like this? Friends, there is hope. There's hope in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of this craziness in Daniel chapter 11. Let's go to, uh, oh, I forgot one more thing. So, (laughs) this is, does anybody know what city this is? This is Los Angeles at night. Something happened in the city of Los Angeles in 1994. Now, if you look at this picture, how many stars can you see? No stars. Well, in 1994, there was a massive earthquake in Los Angeles, which led to a blackout of the entire city. And so people go outside, there's no lights, and they go outside and they're looking up at the stars. And suddenly something happened. People started calling 911. (laughs) They said, there's this silvery cloud up there that's covering Los Angeles, and they thought it was the end of the world when they looked up and saw the Milky Way. They'd never seen it before in their lives. You just don't see that when you live in a city like that. We can be super thankful we live where we do and we get to see the stars. You see, it's easy for us to get distracted by the darkness, to get distracted by even the lights around us, to get distracted by everything else, and not to be able to see where we're headed, to not be able to see what prophecy is all about. Jesus himself, in John 14, 29, he said, I tell you these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you may believe. The whole purpose of all this is that we could fall in love with God, that we could know who God is, that we would believe in his loving character. All right, so now we're to verse 20. Verse 20, we're in the Roman Empire now, and watch this. It says, there shall arise in his place, after the previous Caesar, I believe it was Julius Caesar, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Glorious kingdom is used in this chapter to represent the glorious land, the promised land. It's used to represent the land of Israel. Can you think of a Roman emperor who imposed taxes on the land of Israel? Luke chapter 2, we find that Mary and Joseph are on a journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order, even though she's nine months pregnant, because there's this guy over there named Augustus Caesar who has demanded a census, which would be for the purpose of taxes. So here we have a picture of the birth of Jesus in Daniel chapter 11. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battles. Um, Augustus He did not die in battle. He did not die in anger. He died a peaceful death. Verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is Tiberius Caesar. He was not well liked, but he still managed to step in after Augustus and he was able to take on the emperor role. And if you look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, when Jesus goes and he is baptized, Luke the historian gives us the details and says it was in such and such year of Tiberius Caesar. That Jesus began his ministry. That Jesus went around doing what Daniel chapter 9 told us was confirming the covenant. 
Last week, we looked at this picture of covenant that the entire Bible is summarized by this. The Old Testament is God's promise to be faithful to us. And there's broken promise after broken promise of humanity. And then God steps in in the New Testament and fulfills his promise. Jesus is absolutely everything to us. Absolutely everything that we need. We are complete in him. All right, so then it goes on to say, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Again, there's a kingdom, kingdoms throughout this that are working by force. They're working by intrigue. They're working by self-exaltation. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, is this not Babylon, great Babylon, which I have built for the glory of my majesty? This is how kingdoms operate. This is how we, okay, this may be stepping on toes, but, but this is how we want our politicians to be, right? We want the strong guy who can come in and like he's, he's all that and he knows it and he tells the world that he's all that and we're like, yeah, you go. But the picture of Daniel is that is not how God sets up his kingdom. It absolutely is the We are back. <clears throat> all right, this is going to get more exciting, I promise. Not because of the mics, though. Verse 22. <clears throat> with the force of a flood, this is talking about Ty- uh, what happens with Tiberius, they shall be swept away from before him. Those are those that, that oppose him. And be broken. You know, in the time period of this first century AD, there were thousands of crosses erected for those who opposed the Romans. The countryside was littered with crosses as person after person was, was, who rebelled against the Roman Empire was put on a cross. And notice, and also, also somebody else is going to be broken. And also the prince of the covenant, Jesus is going to be, hold up. With all this madness, don't we need somebody powerful to come in with a bigger gun and demolish this and establish peace? It doesn't work that way. Violence perpetuates violence. Instead, we have Jesus coming in and he steps lower and lower and lower to fulfill covenant by being faithfully loving to every human being, even to the extent that he's bending down and he's washing his disciples' feet. He's healing lepers. He's welcoming prostitutes. He's eating with tax collectors. And he's even going to Pharisees' houses if they'll let him. He's faithfully loving everybody else, thinking about their needs and their wants. He's establishing covenant with people and with God. He's the prince of the covenant, but then he's broken. Right in the midst of this, Jesus is broken. And, and, it, and we read this thinking, man... He could have done so much good. Like the Greeks who approached him right before the crucifixion, you know, come and tell us about Jesus. Come, come tell us who you are rather than going to the cross. But Jesus willingly laid down his life to show you and me that you matter more to God than himself. Is that mind-blowing to you? And to think that God on the cross is saying, you And your eternal happiness, I'm willing to lay down my life so that you could live forever. What an amazing God that is. I think I could trust a God like that. I'm drawn in by a God like that. I don't know about you. A God who who says, I'll do anything possible to win your love and affection. I'll do absolutely everything for you. The prince of the covenant would be broken. 
And Jesus, sure enough, right on time, he went to the cross. And this is the central point of the most complicated chapter in all the Bible. Sometimes we use this to be like, okay, let's dig into all these details to scare people. What type of tactic is that? Is that a tactic of Jesus or is that a tactic of the very powers that are described here? We can't use this prophecy to scare people. It's got to be something that draws people in to see the love of God to be attractive. We saw that the covenant is used in Daniel chapter 9 when Daniel's praying. He says, you're the God who keeps covenant. Daniel chapter 9 goes on to say, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. He'll go to the cross for you because he loves you that much. The prince of the covenant will be broken, we just read. And then from here on in Daniel chapter 11, watch what is happening. There's a power that is moved against the Holy Covenant, verse 28. Verse 30 says there's rage against the Holy Covenant and that he's making alliances with those who forsake the Holy Covenant. The whole story is that Satan hates the gospel and he's inspiring kingdoms and powers and people to do everything possible to take away the good news from you and me that God loves you, that he'd do anything for you, that he's on your side. That's what Daniel means. God is my judge in a good way. He's on my side. So then we skip forward to the last use of covenant in the book of Daniel. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant... He, this, this, this uh, kingdom of the Holy Roman Empire, he shall corrupt with flattery. So the, so the people that are, are not so sure about this covenant business, the people who are uh, violating covenant in their marriage, violating covenant in their families, violating covenant with people around them, the Ten Commandments were actually said that they were a covenant. They were in the Ark of the Covenant and then the new covenant in Matthew cha- or Hebrews chapter uh, 10 says that God wants to write his laws on our heart. But the people that resist being drawn in to love people with all their, all their strength and to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength, the people that resist that are drawn towards this dismal picture of history. They're drawn towards using fear, using anger, using violence, using oppression, using whatever means possible to control people. If it is in our idea that we can control people and push them in a certain direction, then we can be assured that we are part of the old covenant way of thinking rather than the new covenant. We can be assured that, that we are actually against the covenant rather than for the covenant if it's in our express desire to control people. Okay, but you ready for the good news? Here's the good news. Verse 32 goes on to say, but in contrast to those who are against the prince of the covenant, who are against his love, who don't want the world to know that, but the people who know their God, the people who, who know what God is like, who recognize what his character is like, shall be strong. You want to stand strong in the end? What we really need to know is not all the details about how it's going to unfold in the end. We need to know God himself. We need to know Jesus himself because he's the only one that will save. Daniel chapter 12 will make that abundantly clear to us. Those who know their God shall be strong. And you know, for me, it's this book that helps me to know God. Every morning, just waking up and taking time 
getting to know Jesus, taking time in the Gospels, focusing on Jesus, and reading this book not like the Pharisees and missing Jesus. We do that too easily. But reading this book and finding Jesus and accepting his invitation to accept this God of love. You know, Paul once saw a bright light that led him in an entirely different direction. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, he tells us that not only are we to, to know this about God, but it should change how we live. We should live just like Jesus. Notice this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's pretty huge. Nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility. Count others as more significant than yourself. Okay, so I know I need a savior right now because I can't do that. (laughs) I don't know about you. That's like impossible for me to do. It's impossible for human nature to do. And yet it is the call of the new covenant for God to do this in us, to work and to do of his good pleasure. Then it goes on to say, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Live in such a way that you're concerned about their interests, their finances, their house, what's going on in their yard, what's going on in their family. What's going on with your kids that they come before you, your grandparents, whoever it is? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe, as he says, let this mind be in you, he describes an upside-down kingdom where Jesus, who had everything in the form of God, left that and became a human being and who took the form of a human being and went to the point of death on the cross. And then it says, therefore, because he did that, he will be exalted and glorified and worshipped throughout eternity. And then Paul says this in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Any other understanding of prophecy, any understanding of how the world's going to work, any political scheming that we might have in mind, all of that compared to knowing the character of our Savior is absolutely worthless. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But the people who know their God will be strong and they'll act. They'll not just go tell people, but they'll act in such a way that people know that they are valuable in the sight of heaven. And chapter 12 goes on to say this, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You and I are called, Jesus says, to be the light of the world. He says, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are to help people be navigated towards Jesus. Your goal is to look and look and look to Jesus. And in looking to be so transformed by that looking, to know him so much, to know what his character is like, that you know what the Spirit wants to do in you, that you're going to be loving everybody around you the way that Jesus loved them, whether it's the prostitute or whether it's the Pharisee, the Sadducee, or the tax collector. So if you think about conquering the world, this guy often comes to mind. Napoleon Bonaparte, as a young man, He began to arise quickly in the ranks in France, and when the French Revolution took place, he quickly ascended and became an emperor who before long was conquering the known world. He was working to unite all of Europe. But at one point, he led his army up into Russia, and the Russians just kept drawing them further and further up north, because they know what happens in the north in the winter. And... 
then they would just keep drawing further and further back. And when he finally retreated in the winter and his men were starving and freezing to death, he lost 500,000 men out of his 600,000 men. And so they banished him to an island and said, you can no longer be our king. We're no longer following you. This is the way the world works. If you perform, great, we'll have you. If not, then you're out. And he's there on that island, and then he gets a thousand men to rescue him somehow from that island. And he comes back for a hundred days, and he takes over the kingship again, and he begins conquering Europe again. And then he comes to the Battle of Waterloo, and he's defeated. And they say, no, 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 you got to get out of here further. And so this is what they do. They say, you're going to the island of St. Helena. <laughs> you see how far away France is in the United Kingdom? They're like, we're banishing him here. And not only that, but they put 3,000 British troops on the island so that he could not escape. They monitored his mail. They did everything possible to keep him on this island. They had ships monitoring all sides of the island at all times. They had four ships just circling the island watching to make sure that this guy did not get out to conquer the world. And as he was there on that island, something incredible happened as he recognized the worthlessness of everything that he had striven for in his entire life. We read about it from a historian who wrote just 20 to 30 years after his experience that that he began to embrace Jesus. And he was challenged by those who were closest to him saying, how could you believe in Jesus? How how could you do this? And he said, you know what? If, If we lose just one battle, then we're out. But Jesus apparently defeated. Imagine, he said, that one of the emperors from his tomb could somehow marshal the armies of the world. It just can't happen with a human being. And then he said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die For him, those who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Father, thank you for being knowable. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. And I don't know where everybody's at right now. Father, there may be those who have no idea what you're like or who have heard things about you that have made them withdraw and turn away. Father, would you help us to see how you are faithfully loving us to the very end, that you will never stop loving us, that you are a God who has arms open wide for us. Father, may we accept that love and not resist it today. And Father, maybe there's some of us here today who just recognize, I need to know a lot more about how beautiful you are. Father, would you draw us into the Bible? Would you give us an excitement to wake up in the morning or in the evening or whenever to spend time getting to know you as our friend as revealed in the Bible? Father, thank you that you've promised that when we know you, we will become strong. Father, some are needing strength today. They're feeling weak. Would you please lift them up? There are marriages that are struggling. There are families that are struggling. There are work situations. Father, would you give strength to each person here as they know who God is? And then may we not stop there. 
May we go on to do great exploits in your strength, to shine with your light, that people can see that tiny selfless acts, like our teachers at our school who are just constantly giving, like that mother who is constantly there for her children, like that person who's always stepping up to serve at our job, that those tiny, seemingly insignificant, selfless acts can change the world. We know that because of Jesus. Father, may you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that you can lead us to live like Jesus lived. Father, we want to love you more. Thank you for the incredible love you have for us. Bless everyone as they go from here. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.